Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the Department of Management um, uh, Business in the Global Age uh, lecture series, our latest in the series. I have to say, um, for those of you who, who know Saul Estrin, I have to tell you that I am not he. He's indisposed and sent his apologies. My name is Paul Wilman. I'm also a professor in the Department of Management. Well, it gives me a, a, a great pleasure this evening to introduce Sir Ronald Cohen uh, as our guest tonight. He's going to talk, as the slide behind him implies, about turning risk into opportunity, an insider's guide to entrepreneurial strategy. Um, this coincides with the launch of his book, which, as many of you have seen, is on sale outside, and Sir Ronald is, is going to be available to sign copies at the end of the lecture for those who would wish so. Um, I'll keep my introduction short because I, I suspect that many of you know uh, what I'm about to say. Uh, Sir Ronald is, is a founder, some might say the founder, of the private equity industry in Europe and one of the world's leading private equity investors. Uh, he founded, co-founded uh, the firm uh, that uh, subsequently became Apex Partners at the age of 26. And when he stepped down from the chairmanship of this company 33 years later, it was the largest global private equity firm founded in Europe. Uh, he is currently chairman of both Bridges Ventures and the Portland Trust, and his knighthood in 2001 came for his services to venture capital. So without further ado, May I introduce Sir Ronald Cohen. Thank you very much. Can you hear me if I speak like this without the microphone, or would you rather that I spoke with the microphone? With the microphone. Good. Okay. Uh, well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with you at uh, the LSE. Believe it or not, it's the first time I speak at the LSE, and uh, it's a great uh, privilege uh, to be here with all of you. It's also a privilege because uh, I find that as uh, the years go by, uh, younger people get, in inverted commas, entrepreneurship, uh, in many cases far better and far sooner than their elders. And uh, I will try to give you an insight into what I learned from my entrepreneurial career, which involved backing other entrepreneurs, but I'll leave enough time for questions. So I'll try and speak for about 20, 25 minutes and then leave time uh, for, for questions. The book is called The Second Bounce of the Ball. And uh, it, when you write a book, and this is my first book, first of all, it's, a, it, it's quite a, a challenge. We were talking about it. Paul has written uh, nine books. But almost as challenging is to try to encapsulate uh, your thought in a title. And The Second Bounce of the Ball, I think, does that well uh, for the book, uh, that I wrote because the notion of uh, risk is what I started off with and uh, the, working title of, uh, the working title of the book was risk is a four letter word and the reason was that throughout my career I kept hearing you know, don't take a risk this is too risky and it occurred to me as I built Apex up into what is now a massive organization which manages $35 billion uh, across the world, I became increasingly aware of the fact that what we were in business to do was to seek entrepreneurs who wanted to take advantage of uncertainty. And the problem with the word risk is that its etymology, which comes from uh, Italian, means to run into danger. So it's a value-loaded word, and if you say to somebody, do you want to take a risk, the immediate uh, reaction is a negative one. Why should I? And yet this emotive word 
covers up something that is extremely valuable for an entrepreneur, and that is uncertainty. Now, for all of you, uh, it's quite obvious that in situations of certainty, there isn't going to be a major opportunity for profit. If you buy government bonds, they pay a set amount throughout their life. The value may then fluctuate, but they pay a set amount. You know what you're going to get, and it never changes. And in those circumstances, there cannot be an opportunity for an outstanding profit to be made. In order to make a substantial profit, substantial gain if you're building up a company, you've got to go for situations where most people think that they wouldn't go to them. The supply of capital is therefore reduced because the situation is uncertain. And being an entrepreneur has to do with identifying these situations and then putting yourself in a position to take advantage of them. It does not have to do with avoiding uncertainty. It has to do with exploiting uncertainty. And exploiting uncertainty is the essence of entrepreneurship in that sense. Now, we've lived through a period over the last uh, 33 years, at least the 33 years I was at APEX, 35 years now, which has seen fantastic changes in our society and brand new industries have, uh, have arisen. Uh, it's hard to believe that uh, from when I started uh, through to now, you had the electronic revolution with the invention of uh, the microchip. Uh, you had uh, the internet uh, revolution. You had the cellular communications revolution. Uh, and in parallel uh, with that, you've had the discovery of recombinant DNA, the mapping of the human genome, and all of these technologies have uh, converged to a degree. If you didn't have computing, you would not have been able to map the human genome, just as if you didn't have electricity, you wouldn't have seen skyscrapers um, because you needed elevators to get to uh, the top of them. So there are always unexpected consequences from new technologies, and those create opportunities in the market. So the concept of the second bounce of the ball is that these changes occur. Most people don't anticipate them, but they don't come out as a bolt out of the blue. The future has its roots in the present. The first bounce of the ball, everybody can see. It's your job as an entrepreneur to try to anticipate the second bounce better than others, and to put yourself in a position to take advantage of it. Having got the concept uh, across, uh, what is it that is involved in being an entrepreneur? Well, when I started out, you needed to spend a quarter of an hour explaining what an entrepreneur was. In 1972, the prevalent view was that entrepreneurs were a U.S. phenomenon. You didn't find them in Europe, let alone here in, in Britain. Uh, and to try and explain what a venture capitalist was uh, would take you half an hour. If you managed to explain what an entrepreneur was, you were doing pretty well, then ex explaining what a venture capitalist was would take you even longer. And it's a true story that uh, a friend of mine who was a venture capitalist took his son to visit his new school, and the headmaster asked him, what is it that your father does? And the kid answered, he's an adventure copulist. <laughs> so... The concept of, uh, of uh, venture capital uh, was, uh, was just not here. 
And it took us years to get to the stage we're at today in Britain and in many European countries. We're approaching the stage. We're still behind the United States, but it took us 30 years to get to the stage we're at today where 2.8 million people in Britain work for businesses that have had venture or private equity backing. Being an entrepreneur involves a number of challenges. When I started out, the view was you had to be bold enough uh, that you would uh, leave a secure job and just jump in. And there is a sense in which jumping in is crucially important. When we were starting out, and I was uh, 26, the age of some of you here, we used to have debates, the three partners I, I had uh, and I in a basement pizza restaurant near Harvard Square. We were at Harvard Business School at the time. And the debate used to be about should we launch our business now or should we prepare more for it uh, and launch it a few years from now. And I coined the phrase which appears in the book, which is that you can't learn to swim by exercising on the beach. And that is true in a very real sense. I think a lot of entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs who could have launched out don't do so because they have a feeling that they're not quite ready for it. And one of the lessons uh, from my career is that if you feel ready and if you feel you've identified an opportunity that, uh, that uh, makes sense, it's seldom too early for you to jump in. The experience that you get, the experience that I got between the ages of 26 and uh, 30 served me much more uh, because I was learning about being an entrepreneur than if I had stayed at McKinsey, say, which is a tremendous consulting firm, uh, for an additional uh, four or five years. But in any event, the general wisdom was that you dive in and then you sink or swim. And what I try to, um, uh, to bring to the notice of the reader in the book is that actually this is not the case anymore. There is a lot of experience uh, about what is involved in being an entrepreneur and creating a business and developing it. And there is such a thing as entrepreneurial strategy. And if you can manage to understand the road that you're going to travel, and if you're familiar with the key elements of entrepreneurial strategy, then your likelihood of success is increased very considerably. And the quantum of your potential success is also increased. And the first aspect of that uh, is a notion that used to be very prevalent. It's beginning to change now with uh, companies like uh, eBay and Google and Autonomy and, and Waterstones and others. Uh, the notion used to be that if you want to uh, become successful at building a large business, you have to be successful at building a small business first. And there is a flaw in that argument. The flaw in that argument is that if you focus on building a small business, your vision will attract people who are only capable of building a, a small business. If you start off with the vision of building a major business, you will attract a different league of person whose ambition is to build something that is truly remarkable. And their ability to help you achieve the vision is correspondingly greater. And one example of that um, is very easily 
perceived. If you say, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to create a publishing company that focuses on a small segment of a very specialist market, and I want to recruit a great director, it will attract a certain type of person. If you say, I want to build the leading global company in a new type of publishing, you will attract a different type of person. And so businesses tend to grow to the size of the vision of the entrepreneur. And you build in a modular form. Of course, you start with a cornerstone to build a building. But you're not pitching a tent on a site. You're putting down a cornerstone with a vision of a substantial business, and you're constantly building towards it. Another aspect of entrepreneurial strategy is that most entrepreneurs start because they feel an opportunity has hit them uh, in the face, as it were. Aren't I lucky this opportunity has come my way? And they don't analyze in any depth the market that they're going to be entering, where that market is in terms of its level of, of development, its level of uh, maturity, or where they are in the cycle for that particular product or service, uh, or indeed very often in the economic cycle, uh, what it is that they're likely uh, to experience in terms of market conditions. And so another aspect is timing. We all know the phrase timing is everything, but I think in entrepreneurial terms, timing means understanding where you are in the cycle and the trend for your business. And if you want to move forward fast, then you don't go for the market as it is now. You don't go for the first bounce of the ball. You learn your market well enough that you can anticipate the second bounce when others can't, and you put yourself in a position to take advantage of the second bounce of the ball. There are various other aspects of uh, entrepreneurial strategy in the book. As you would expect, uh, the financial dimension is a crucial one. Many entrepreneurs focus on their product and their market, but they don't really come to grips with the financial model that is implicit in their area of activity, uh, the sort of uh, working capital requirements that, uh, that they would have, the, the skeleton, if you like, that lies beneath the flesh of uh, the activity itself. And so rather as an aeroplane that is on a runway uh, and finds the runway too short at some stage, they're unable to take off. They crash. They run out of money. They ignored that dimension of their business, uh, and it was too late by the time they woke up to be able to remedy it. And the consequence in, the financial, uh, in financial terms uh, of running out of money is that the new investors in the colloquial parlance of the field, wipe you out. If you have a business which could have been worth two or three million pounds, and you needed to raise a million pounds for it, and it runs out of money, and everybody knows that you're going to have to close it down and fire the people, you're not going to get a three million pound valuation. So there's also a financial dimension that's associated with it. But perhaps the most striking dimension of entrepreneurial strategy that you need to focus on as you set out is the fact that your role as a manager is a variable geometry role. 
I mean by that that when you set off with a venture, you create generally an organization which has the entrepreneur as the hub of it. But an organization where everybody reports into the hub at the center can only take you to a size of 40 or 50 people generally. If you want to build a very substantial business, you are going to have to adjust your role as an entrepreneur to the needs of your firm. But since ego, and there's a chapter on ego, intellect, and intuition in the book, since ego is a crucial driver of entrepreneurship, ego very often leads entrepreneurs to maintain themselves at the hub instead of moving themselves to the front of the organization, recruiting people who can do their jobs better than you would be able to do them, delegating to them and enabling them to be able to make entrepreneurial decisions in, in their turn. And so you have to control your ego. I say in the book that ego should be a turbocharger, not a navigation system. And if you look in the private equity industry today, at who have been the successful firms, they're led by entrepreneurs who are able to take that dimension into account and to control it, sometimes through a process of trial and error with mistakes on the way, and entrepreneurship is a process of trial and error. You can't avoid setbacks. It's in the nature of dealing with uncertain things that you will have setbacks. But they've been able to turn their setbacks into a way of moving forward faster, turning setbacks to advantage. And one of the most obvious um, ways in which that is achieved is when you have a team with very valuable members in it and a valuable member decides to leave, gets poached by a competitor or for some other reason disappears from the scene. And some organizations would view that as a catastrophe. And the CEO would somehow try to optimize the situation. But the great entrepreneurs will ask themselves the question, who could I recruit to replace this person that would lead the organization to say, my gosh, we're going to move forward even faster as a result of this because we've recruited somebody who could take us further than the predecessor. And the firms that have made it in the private equity business today, and there are 10, 12 firms that are managing billions of dollars across, uh, across the world, have tended to be run by teams that have understood this. Now perhaps having given you a sense of some of the challenges on the road to an entrepreneurial uh, success, perhaps I can just talk for a few minutes, uh, Paul, about private equity. I don't know how many of you here are here because you're interested in entrepreneurship, if you could please raise your hands, or if you're interested in private equity. few more uh, entrepreneurs than private, potential private equity mogul, moguls in the future. Private equity has developed into a profession, just as entrepreneurship has developed into a profession. And private equity and entrepreneurship in my career, and I think in your careers, are a double helix. One supports the other. When I started out, it was impossible to raise uh, money. Uh, if an entrepreneur wanted to go out and raise money for a venture, a promising venture, you didn't know who to go to. You went to a bank, you went to Aunt Agatha, uh, or you went to the neighbor next door. 
Today, you've got $500 billion across the world waiting to be invested uh, in backing entrepreneurs. $500 billion. And everybody knows what a business plan should look like. There are benchmarks for what would be appropriate for an entrepreneur setting out who would like to sell 10% of his or her company to achieve a certain level of, of, of success with a, with a product. Uh, banks know what their role is alongside equity. There are public markets, and in that, by that I mean stock markets, that are accepting of companies that have not yet made a profit. We're much less well served in Europe in that respect than in the United States. And if you're interested in that, I will happily talk about it. So you begin when you look at all, uh, at all of these different uh, factors to see that entrepreneurship has developed into a profession with benchmarks that are very clearly laid out. Now that makes your task as entrepreneurs a lot easier. You have the opportunity to prepare your business plan, to put together a team that you think is credible, and to go and speak to three or four firms that have spent the last 30 years backing people such as yourselves. The iterative process between the two leads to a huge improvement in the quality of your business plan because the private equity firms have specialized in helping companies to grow fast, the private equity firms can bring dimensions uh, to your thinking. And they have connections in terms of recruiting people, and they bring credibility in attracting them. So when you read about the private equity industry today, it's very hard to recognize the private equity industry as it really is. Uh, people are getting attacked in uh, private equity because they're asset strippers. The reality is that less than 10% of the activity of private equity investors has to do with selling off the assets of mature companies. The industry is a growth junkie. We're all looking for companies that can grow faster than others. And it is a sobering uh, thought that over the last 25, 30 years, six companies in the United States have made it from scratch to the top 100 companies in the world. Microsoft, Google uh, now, uh, Sun, Intel, Oracle. And those companies made it because they were led by entrepreneurs who had an insight that the big companies didn't have or that the big companies had but didn't think were worth pursuing. And IBM could have dominated the PC market. And IBM today is a fraction of the size of Microsoft, which it adopted as the operating system for its own computers. So I'd like to uh, move on and just finish by spending a few moments on entrepreneurship as a mindset and its impact on social investment. Not everybody in, in this room is perhaps interested in just making a profit. And one of the consequences of the entrepreneurial revolution that uh, you're fortunate to, to be born into is 
that the consequences of growth are now realized to be, in many cases, unacceptable for society. The general standard of living of an economy uh, increases, you get to full employment, you give a huge incentive uh, for people to go out and to build businesses, get them to grow quickly, which is better for the economy. But the market does not deal with its social consequences. And a huge swathe of the population is left behind. There are 6 million people in Britain who live on less than £10,000 a year out of a, an, employment, an employed population of about 30 million. And governments do not really have the wherewithal to solve these problems. They can give grants, but grants create dependency. They don't create the feeling of independence. And so the mindset of an entrepreneur is now being applied in this area, in what you might call the area of social investment. And what does it involve? It involves picking a social mission and using private sector forces, entrepreneurship, capital markets, to remedy some of the failures in the system that condemn these areas uh, to be centers of disadvantage. One of the things that I have been involved in, in doing in that respect is called uh, Bridges Ventures. And Bridges Ventures is a private equity firm that operates just like Apex did, but it makes its investments only in the poorest 25% of Britain. And when we started out, it was perceived as a very uncertain thing. We started out five years ago. But I think the returns from investing Bridges funds, and the first fund, they're not tiny funds, the first fund was £40 million, raised half from the private sector and half in matching money from the government. The second fund is £75 million. The returns look very promising. But even more importantly, the social impact which the portfolio companies that we invest in plot in terms of their purchases from these poor areas, their sales to these areas, the people they recruit from them, people they employ in them, the social impact is very significant. And along the way, you create very powerful role models. It's been said that when positive role models in an area fall below 5% of the population, the area goes into a downward spiral. And I'll leave you with this example, uh, the best role model created in the last five years by Bridges, one of uh, three or four role models that have already been created out of a portfolio of about 25 companies. A single mother of three who left school at 16 with one GCSE and who over a period of three years with her business partner turned £300,000 into £22 million. And that's Karen Darby. And it proves that entrepreneurship knows no social or geographic or educational boundaries. I don't believe that entrepreneurs are wholly made. I think there are certain characteristics of hard work, of ambition, of drive, of leadership that are common to all entrepreneurs, without which it's difficult to be successful as an entrepreneur, although some people have, have managed to do it even without some of these qualities. But most of it can be learned. And we are living through a period now 
where the wave of social entrepreneurship is beginning to form. And just as I sensed that the wave of business entrepreneurship was going to rise 30 years ago, was going to rise to unimaginable heights, I think the wave of social entrepreneurship can do the same. Thank you very much. So, Ron, thank you very much. There's a great deal in that. Um, we have time for questions. Uh, we have colleagues wandering around with microphones, uh, both downstairs and I think upstairs as well. Um, do we have any questions? Could I, before taking them, could I uh, inform the audience as I'm required to that this is being recorded for uh, a podcast which will be available on the LSE website? I think the first hand that I saw raised was the gentleman in the centre here. I'd like to take, if I may, two or three questions at a time um, and uh, then allow Sir Ronald the chance to answer them. Um, can, you, can you hear me? Yes. Good, of course. Uh, Sir Ronald, do you think um, exceptional LBO returns have squashed early stage and growth capital, and how do you think that affects entrepreneurship? Thank you. And then the gentleman in the orange, uh, pull over here. Uh, thanks. About Portland Trust, which I see is listed Portland Capital here. Is this organized as a private equity model? And if so, what are the advantages of using that model over maybe a charity model or something? And then one more from the gentleman in the front, if I may. You mentioned the importance of the cycle, and I'd be just curious with uh, everything going on with the dollar and um, – many other issues right now, what your thoughts are on the current state of, of the economy in UK in particular. Thanks. Okay. Okay. So would you be comfortable answering yes, those? Yes, very good. Yeah, I'd be very happy to. I'll do my best. Well, on the issue of LBO returns and early stage, when the industry kicked off, it was all early stage. The reality with early stage is that it is extremely difficult to do. It really is climbing the north face early stage. And Europe does not have all of the infrastructure that makes early-stage investment successful. What do I mean by that? We failed to catch up with the United States in Europe because of our failure to create stock markets like NASDAQ that reduce the risk of early-stage investing. Now, this is not an obvious point, so if you forgive me, I'll spend a couple of minutes on it because it is a crucial point to understand. If you're an entrepreneur or if you're a venture capitalist and you launch your venture with venture backing, to assume that you raise five million pounds or dollars or euros to kick off your venture and you've analyzed other businesses in the area and you realize you're going to need 20 or 30 or 50 million before you can achieve profitability. Google absorbed 100 million dollars before you, and they haven't achieved, they haven't achieved profitability. This actually makes the point. If you can go public because there's a market like NASDAQ in the States, which is part of the reason that the U.S. has been so successful in the technology area. NASDAQ was created in 1970, which says this market exists in order to finance from 
institutions and from private individuals to raise finance that goes into companies that have not yet achieved profitability, you begin to create a completely different dynamic. The dynamic then is, at what stage will the company I'm backing, Autonomy, which is a company I was involved in, at what stage will Autonomy be able to go public? It will not be the stage of profitability. It will be way before it. It might be the stage at which its system has been adopted by major corporations. And an investment bank would then say, fine, I'll go and raise money for you. Now, that might be when Autonomy has absorbed $10 million or $15 million, and it can then raise 50 or $100 million to transform its chances of success. In the United States, you could always raise money earlier at a lower cost to yourself and at a multiple of the amount that you could raise in Europe. So it's no wonder that when Microsoft goes public or when Sun goes public or Google goes public, it transforms its chances of success. Quite apart from the advantages of being in a very big market, which we're now with the euro, we're beginning to replicate here in Europe. So to answer your question about early stage and LBOs, Clearly, if you're buying very large, mature businesses, the sums are going to be greater. What's happened in Europe differs from the United States. In the United States, perhaps 75% of the activity is LBOs and 25% is early stage. Here in Europe, if you look at figures carefully, we're probably half of the early stage investment. And so it's 12.5%, although I've seen figures, and I, I quote some in the book, that look bigger because of the devaluation of the dollar and all the rest of it. But basically, the activity of early-stage investing in Europe is a much smaller proportion than it is in the United States. And we don't have the shining examples that attract other entrepreneurs to the early-stage area. Now, it's very interesting, just to close on this, uh, on this first question, that if you look at Israel, India, and China... Their technology companies are being successful, more successful than European ones, because they can go public on NASDAQ. And the reason is that, you say, I couldn't go public on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange, I'm coming to go public on NASDAQ. People think that's a reasonable thing to be doing. But if you say, I couldn't go public on the London Stock Exchange, I'm coming to NASDAQ, people say, oh, wait a minute, something's wrong with this company. It couldn't get financed in its own, in its own country. So we better shy away from it. And so that's one of the reasons for one of the uh, attempts that I made, an unsuccessful attempt, uh, to create ESDAC, which was a market set up in Europe with the backing of NASDAQ. But that's a longer, a longer story. So I think the challenge today is not to say should we reduce the level of buyout activity. It will continue to double and treble in my view, from where we are today. The challenge is to say, how can we get the right financial markets in Europe so that we can begin to reduce the risk of early-stage investing? Now, the second question was about Portland Capital uh, and the Portland Trust. Uh, Portland Capital is an investment manager. Uh, I spent a third of my time on investment management for profit. Portland Trust is, uh, is the, the organization that would interest you. And the Portland Trust is an attempt to use private sector means of boosting the standard of living of Palestinians and poor Israelis. And what brought me to create the Portland Trust with uh, Sir Harry Solomon, who is a very uh, old friend of mine and former advisor to APACS,
uh, Sir Martin Gilbert, the famed historian who is another trustee, uh, five years ago, was the realization that politics alone were not going to bring a solution to the Middle East conflict. And if you analyze uh, the Irish uh, conflict, which has the same types of religious overtones, albeit not entirely comparable, what changed in Northern Ireland was 20 years of investment that reduced the level of Catholic unemployment relative to the level of Protestant unemployment. We can talk about that longer. And so what we did with the Portland Trust was not to create a private equity model in the sense of a private equity fund, but we created an organization that focuses on developing the private sector on the Palestinian side and the relief of poverty on the Israeli side by using the techniques that I have picked up in the private equity world. So we're working in microfinance. We're working in getting the banking system going by providing a loan guarantee scheme of uh, $200 million <coughs> to Palestinian banks, making medium-sized loans. We're working at the moment on a billion-dollar affordable housing scheme uh, on the West Bank. And we don't supply the money. The money that we supply keeps a team of about 15 people in London, Tel Aviv, and Ramallah going. But what we do is we supply the thinking that says this is the sensible thing to do. And because we have the financial credibility and the CEO of the Portland Trust, David Freud, was uh, vice chairman of uh, investment banking at uh, UBS, we can go to sources of finance, whether it's the European Investment Bank or OPIC, uh, which is an agency of the U.S. government in the United States, or even raise bond issues if, if we need to to finance these things. It's a very long-term project. We've already spent five years at it. Venture capital funds have a 10-year life. I was talking to one of my erstwhile colleagues today. We're going to close down one of our venture funds after private equity funds after 20 years. And I think it's that type of a time scale. Now for the cycle. There are several things that are happening in the world today, and I'm not necessarily, um, you know, Alan Greenspan um, uh, is probably uh, better qualified than I am um, to answer your question. But I see several things happening today. First of all, I see seven to ten years in Europe and, and uh, the United States following the um, uh, piercing of the what's come to be known as the technology bubble of huge liquidity. What do I mean by that? Interest rates after the bubble were brought down from 5% to 1%. And they stayed from 2001 to 2006 in the United States at 1%. Now, what does that do? What that does is it inflates asset values, whether it's the value of your home, because you can borrow more at 1% than you could at 6%, whether it's the value of companies, because a private equity fund will borrow, initially might have borrowed twice its equity, subsequently six times its equity, at very cheap uh, rates, inflates the values of companies, inflates the value of, uh, of markets, and it creates an asset bubble. And bubbles are formed, which isn't the subject of today's talk, but forgive me, um, uh, Paul, uh, bubbles are formed because there's something credible happening, and intelligent investors go in, and then others rush in. And the others rush in, not because they've understood the fundamentals. They rush in because the market's going up. 
And as long as the market's going up, they keep going in, and that's what happened with the technology bubble. And so what's happened now is that we are seeing the bursting of the credit bubble, and it has burst because interest rates have had to reverse. So we're now moving into a period where credit looks like being more expensive. You're seeing a deflation of asset values, falls in, in the housing uh, market, and you're beginning to see the impact of what's known as subprime, and subprime was really lending to people at cheap rates who really wouldn't normally have been a very good risk because they couldn't afford to pay the interest in the first year on the loan that they were taking to buy a house. They could only afford to pay it in the third year. But now their jobs look as if they might be on, on the line because there's an economic uh, downturn. And so all of a sudden, there's a fear that you would get a collapse. What do you mean by a collapse? People can't pay their mortgages. They're out of jobs. They have to sell their houses at very low prices. Institutions lose a ton of money. They need to go back to the equity markets to raise money. The cost of raising finance goes up. And all of a sudden, you're into a very difficult economic situation. And if you have followed a policy that ignored the dollar, that basically said all of the focus goes on economic growth and let the dollar take the slack, the dollar devalues. Now, at what stage, and this is the real quandary for the United States, at what stage do you have no choice but to raise interest rates in order to maintain the value of the dollar? Can you afford to have a dollar that goes to, you know, $2.50 to the pound? You know, it's very, it's very expensive today for uh, exporters from Europe to compete with, with a dollar such as it is. So you begin to get into a very, uh, a very uh, conflictual uh, situation among countries as well. So that's where we are. Now, is the implication of the very high level of volatility that we see in markets, which is now back to 1929 levels, I don't want to scare any of you, but the volatility is extremely high. Now, does this mean that we're going to have a meltdown? I don't believe we're going to have a meltdown. I think the world economic uh, order uh, and the financial order is in much better shape than it was in, 19, in 1929. And there's much greater level of cooperation across countries. But we are going to pay the cost of the party of the last few years. And uh, it's going to create huge opportunities. It's going to create huge opportunities because it's a, it's a change in the cycle. And a change in the cycle leads to another bounce of the ball. And so when people say this is going to be a terrible time for private equity, they've got the wrong end of the stick. This is going to be a fantastic time. This is the time to invest in private equity funds because you're going to be investing at a time when companies cannot raise money from the stock exchange, cannot get money from the bank, and if they're in trouble because their sales and their profits are, are declining, the only place they're going to be able to go to are private equity funds. And for those who think, well, could private equity, could buyouts um, grow? Aren't they huge already? Well, even if you borrow two parts of debt to the 500 billion of uninvested private equity that exists today, you would account for 4% of the value of shares quoted on stock exchanges across the world. It's not, you haven't reached any sort of glass ceiling for the growth of the industry. So, 
the question now is, I think, for, for entrepreneurs, which bounce of the ball in which place is going to create an opportunity you know, for them from this. For private equity, it's going to be distressed securities, you know, buying up loans that were made imprudently uh, and buying them up very cheaply. That's, that's one aspect of it. It's going to be great companies that borrowed too much or acquired a company with a lot of debt and company, the acquisition didn't work out. And these companies could go bust if private equity isn't around. Private equity is basically the only source, well, now there are sovereign funds, but until the advent of sovereign funds like Abu Dhabi, China, and, and Singapore, and so on, private equity was the only source of long-term capital. And it'll continue to play uh, that role. Gentlemen with the microphone, please. Yes, uh, I think you already answered uh, some parts of my question. Uh, I would like to start um, with um, the chairman of Deutsche Bank, Joseph Ackermann. He uh, recently said that it's the worst crisis uh, he ever saw in his uh, lifetime. You, I think you mentioned uh, 1972 when you started your uh, career. Yes. Would you also um, say this uh, credit crisis is uh, one of the worst uh, crises you ever saw? If you look back at the oil crisis, 1972, 1973, high interest rates, 1980s, 81, um, and then after 87, uh, Greenspan, like um, decreased interest rates, uh, you had global liquidity. Um, what does this crisis mean for uh, private equity? Because much of the returns have been based on uh, low interest rates. So you said it's it's possibly like the risk appetite is going down at the moment. It's, it's a good uh, process. Do you also see risk for the private equity industry? Good question. Yeah, take a couple more. Okay. Yeah. Gentleman with the mic at the back, please. Um, if, you were to <coughs> sorry. if you were to pinpoint or if you were to pick one quality which uh, made your career, what would it be? One quality. The recent proposed tax changes on the private equity industry, in addition to the media fury, suggest that perhaps the private equity industry hasn't done enough to promote its positive impact on the economy. I'd be interested in your perspective on that. And related, the extent to which you think the private equity sector has given enough back to not-for-profits, um, obviously the development of things like bridge capital and social entrepreneurship is, um, is a new phenomenon. Okay. Just one more. Gentleman with the mic there, please. You started off your talk about the changes through the last 30 years. Um, in, in, in over the next 30 years, when we have globalization and everything else is going to uh, happen uh, with India and China, do you feel that we can still say second um, to, to the U.S. in the world's in, in private equity? And how can we um, um, and, ha and ha how can we keep that? Very good questions. Thank you. Crises and the cost of money. I think this crisis is less like 2000 and more uh, like 1987. Uh, I don't think it's exactly like 1972 because 1972 we had a major problem with trade unions uh, and uh, you, you know, we had a three-day week in 1972 because there was a coal miner strike. Couldn't churn out enough electricity to keep factories going. So in some respects, um, I think this crisis uh, feels like 87 to 92. And uh, we had in uh, the UK, we had the, the currency snake and we had uh, 
subsequently, uh, which led in 1992 to situations that are reminiscent of what's happening um, now, which is a period of decreasing <coughs> economic activity and increasing interest rates, so that you've got sales and profits pointing down and you've got the cost of finance going, uh, going up. I don't think the cost of money is going to be a problem for the private equity industry. Now, why do I think that? The reason I think that is that the availability of debt and its cost affects the value of the companies that you buy. What we saw over the last uh, six, seven years is companies which you would have bought at six times what we call EBIT in the business, earnings before interest and, and uh, tax, at six times EBITs were being bought at 12 times EBIT. Previously, you would have bought them with two parts of, uh, of debt to one part of equity. At the end, you were buying them with two parts of equity and ten parts of debt. And the reason that you could, you could bid more and more is the return on equity, as you increase the debt, could still be kept at 25%. Obviously, the greater the leverage, the lower the cost of finance, and the greater the return on the equity is going to be. So I think what's going to happen if we go through a period of very high interest rates is valuations of assets will come down. Price-equity ratios on stock exchanges will contract. <coughs> On the issue of what is a single quality um, uh, that has marked my career, I would say perseverance. I think it's the crucial, crucial quality uh, in, my, you know, in my career. And when, uh, if you read the book, you'll see, we started out with four partners to whom I referred, and two of them, after three years, decided to leave. And the third, who is still my partner in, in France, was very jaundiced by our experience as a partnership and was very interested in having a much more arm's length relationship. I was basically more or less alone. And I drew a decision tree. Do you learn the decision tree at the LSE or you do that? Okay, so I drew a decision tree, which I also uh, show in, in, in the book. I drew a decision tree. And the choice was, begin, was between running for cover, going back to McKinsey or finding employment elsewhere and launching later, or deciding to persevere. And if I decided to persevere, my biggest challenge was how do I remedy the loss of my American partner in particular? There were two in France, one in America, myself here. France was not, and still is not, crucial to the development of a financial business, but the United States really is. And I managed to come up with an idea in a conversation with my, with my mother, uh, who could be the person that would replace the partner I was losing and be even better. And I came up with the right idea. And the right idea was Alan Patrikov, who was already in the venture capital business, unlike my partner, already in the venture capital business, managing $2.5 million, if you can believe it. Uh, today we're talking of $10 billion, $15 billion, $20 billion funds. $2.5 million was the biggest fund in those days. $2.5 million. And who knew the private equity or the venture capital business as it then was and could bring credibility to my efforts to raise my first fund. I would never have raised my first fund in 1981, nine years after I set off, 
if I hadn't had Alan Patrikoff's credibility to back me up. Half the money was raised in the United States. We could only raise five million pounds in Britain. We raised 10 million in total, five million pounds in Britain from people who thought that, look, maybe venture capital will work over here. And if I hadn't persevered, I wouldn't have pushed for, for that. If your reaction is immediately, okay, I'll go back and I'll jump into the water again three years from now, you don't get to the stage of thinking, how can I turn this setback into an opportunity? On the issue of the private equity industry's image, I think a lot has to do with the fact that it is a private industry. The great advantage of being in private equity versus being um, in a quoted company, the great advantage of being private equity backed was that you didn't have to worry about what the reactions were going to be to the things that you were doing. You could afford to lose money, for instance, for several years running, and, uh, and as long as it came out in the end, in an increased profit, you made money out of your investment. You didn't really have to give account to anybody. The problem with that is that it led to a culture of the industry feeling that it was entitled to do everything that it wanted, um, you know, away from the public gaze. Now, what occurred, of course, was that as the funds grew in size, the companies, the number of investments, somebody asked a question about LBOs, the individual investments that you made in companies grew in size. You never invest more than 10% of a fund or perhaps 15% of a fund. If you've got a billion to invest, it's 150 million. If you've got 5 billion, it's 750. And if you've got 15, then, you know. So the industry hoped against hope that it could increase the size of deal without being more open about its activities. And it led to a rude awakening. It started in Germany, then it was in Denmark, then it came to, it came to the UK. And in the UK, the trade unions picked it up because there was one case where businesses were being rationalized, and I'm not saying the venture capitalists or private equity firms involved did a great job of handling it, but they were leading to job losses, they didn't want to speak to the unions, and the unions uh, began to take, uh, you know, take the story to the media and to the streets. Now the industry has adjusted to that. Uh, it has uh, commissioned a report. So David Walker is a very uh, intelligent, uh, experienced person. He's come out with an intelligent set of, uh, of recommendations. And uh, the industry is going to act as a halfway house between public companies and private companies. And it's not going to be whether you're in private equity or whether you're into public companies that's going to determine how much information you make available. It's what's the size of the company, how many employees does, does it have, what's the impact on the life of the country. In terms of putting back, I am a private equity um, uh, person. Uh, I am putting back by chairing the Social Investment Task Force, Bridges, Portland Trust, and all sorts of other things. Peter Wheeler is putting back. He's not from private equity, from investment banking, but he's putting back by... Um, uh, chairing Future Builders, uh, which is a not-for-profit organization. Uh, Phil Newborough, who was at Apex, is putting back by leading with Michelle Giddens uh, Bridges Ventures. Stephen Dawson, who's a private equity uh, professional, is putting back by trying to bring private equity methods to philanthropies. He will only give a philanthropic contribution out of the fund that he controls if the philanthropy will organize itself properly, will have a proper strategy 
will apply the same sort of rigor that we do in the private sector. And I think the, I think the industry is making a contribution. I think it's capable of making a, an even bigger contribution. And I think these pressures will lead it to make a bigger contribution. We now have a private equity foundation which raised five million pounds at the dinner. People poo-pooed it. Uh, it's, it's not an amount to poo-poo. Five million pounds is a lot of money to raise, and it's in the beginning. I think you can do a hell of a lot more. But perhaps the best answer to your question is that the skills of the private equity industry, the skills that have been acquired in mainstream entrepreneurship are totally applicable in social entrepreneurship. And the industry has the potential to make a massive contribution to the problems that, uh, that the world faces. And I think it's a challenge it will pick up. Now, on the issue of, of globalization and can Britain maintain its place, was it Britain you were thinking of as number two in the world after the United States? It's hard to believe uh, that 20 years from now you will not have a Chinese private equity industry uh, that is in part based in China, run by Chinese professionals. There will be global private equity companies that originate in China and with an economy with one and a quarter billion people in it, the size of the industry is going to be a, a, a factor greater than the United States or, you know, or, or Britain. But I think it's a mistake to think about Britain as a private equity market uh, that is national. We moved in 1987 uh, from national funds to um, regional funds. And London is the base for a lot of European uh, and global investors. Can London maintain its position? Can New York maintain its position as a financial center, even if uh, China develops as a major power? I think the answer to that question is yes. And the reason is they're international markets. And these international markets require a particular type of, of expertise. And once that expertise has taken root in a, in a place, it's much easier for everyone to leave it there unless something major um, you know, occurs. And then I think there was a question, there was a question about, uh, you, meant you referred to CGT. I don't know if you were asking for my reaction to the CGT changes. I think increased from 10 to 18% for the capital uh, gains that private equity professionals uh, make is a perfectly acceptable level internationally. I'm not so happy about um, uh, entrepreneurs paying uh, not 10% but 18%. But 18%. And actually the outcry against these CGT increases by entrepreneurs is the proof that we've all been successful in building an entrepreneurial society in Britain. Never before could you have conceived of the CBI, the Institute of Directors, the Chambers of Commerce and uh, the Federation of Small Business all ganging up against the government and saying, don't touch this. Thank you. I think we have a chance for one more round of questions. Could I ask the gentleman up there to begin, please? I just think we are missing the point. I'm, uh, I'm certain in my researching, my, my studies, that the, there is a serious trend in, uh, in venture capital and private equity in financing the green economy, so in the, in the green technologies and in sustainable development. I see uh, few people, few professionals like you, Mr. Cohen, Speak seriously about this, uh, this trend, this opportunity, this uh, necessity for the, the world as a sustainable system and, uh, like this. Thanks.
Sir Arnold. Um, I, I started a company um, when I was quite young, which on my own, which subsequently failed. And uh, one of the things I was told by uh, um, a successful business owner was that um, 50% of something is worth a lot more than 100% of nothing. Um, what do you think about that? <laughs> and, and, sorry, and what's, the, what's the question? Do I agree with that? Uh, the, the question, you, you, said, you said before that you had uh, various partners. How did, you, how did you come together? Did you have a common goal? Um, um, did you have a common uh, uh, strategy in mind? Okay. Um, and then third question. Sir, Sir Arnold, I just wanted to get your opinion on, like as a founder of a company, uh, in your experience, what are the, the major indicators you think that when a founder needs to step back and bring in professional managers to take over a business, not necessarily private equity, but if it's a founder of a, a retailer or a, a technology company, when do they bring in more experienced people? When, when is the question? When? Yeah, wh- and what are the indicators? That they should. Yeah. Okay. 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 Take those three. Thank you. Clean energy, the amount of money going into clean energy now, particularly in the, United, uh, in the United States, has increased exponentially. And last time I saw, there were $3 billion going into clean energy ventures. Uh, I was just in Israel where there is a deal, as we call it, uh, to raise $200 million uh, to fund a move from uh, petrol-driven cars to electric-driven cars. Uh, with uh, instead of you go to the petrol station but you charge up your battery uh, basically and uh, you know so I think we're going to see these because you can go through one shock you can go through two oil shocks you can go through you know through three oil shocks and you can see the price go up and up and up and now we're beginning to realize that we're going to run out at the end of the day or we're going to destroy the planet in the process and so it's permeated the consciousness now a hell of a lot more. A lot of people are buying hybrid cars. I bought a hybrid car. A lot of people are buying hybrid cars. You know, it, it, it may not solve the problem, but at least it shows that people are prepared to consume products that are more environmentally friendly. And I think the second bounce of the ball in the energy business and in uh, transport has not yet been defined. It's a massive bounce. A massive bounce, and somebody's going to get it right, and you're going to see a company like Microsoft arise from it. So that's clean energy. On the issue of partners, we met uh, at Harvard, and uh, our feeling was that you've got people who are like-minded, just as several of you who are friends might feel at LSE. This is not an opportunity that recurs many times in life. And so if you found great people and uh, you get on, why not do something together? You must be stronger. And the original business plan that we had, um, uh, the very first one, was called Multinational Management Group, and it involved having three countries, the United States, France, and the UK. So of necessity, you needed partners. Now, the difficulty for us when we started is that we started with a sort of communist principle that everybody is paid uh, according to his needs rather than according to his contribution. And so it didn't matter which country was doing better, we would all share uh, and, and receive the same salary and so on. It didn't work. It didn't work. Everything was based on common decision making. You had to agree on everything. And we really began to um, do better 
although two partners left after that, when we said, let the UK be responsible for its profitability, France for its profitability, and the US for its profitability, we'll operate under a single brand, we'll share certain profits, but essentially each of us had a territory uh, to go and develop. And I think the key, the key um, issue when you're starting out a venture is are you going to find that your decision-making is going to be impaired by having people that you have to agree with? Or can you be the primus inter pares who, at the end of the day, makes the decision, as I discuss in, in the book? Uh, decision-making is not a democratic process in business generally, and certainly not in entrepreneurial companies. You can't make um, yourself the fulcrum of partners uh, just express their, you know, the, the result of weighing opinions on both sides. You have to throw yourself on one side or, or the other. And unless you have a leader who can <coughs> listen to everyone, throw his or her weight on one side of the scale and say, great, I've heard it all, this is what we're going to do, this is what I think is going to work best, uh, then it's very difficult to move forward. So I think it isn't so much the issue of um, um, are you going to make more money out of it, uh, because you can make a ton of money out of a partnership. It's who's going to provide the leadership, who's going to make the decisions. On the issue of uh, when a business grows sufficiently that the entrepreneur realizes that he or she must bring <coughs> management in, usually the business tells you. Usually things don't happen on time or don't happen on cost. The company doesn't grow as fast people in the firm are dissatisfied because decisions don't get made at the right time or in the right, or, or in the right way. Some entrepreneurs wait until they've got a revolution on their hands, and some entrepreneurs anticipate the second bounce of the ball and say, look, I'm going there. How can I prevent the problems from occurring by bringing in people who have managed the business? Now, if you said to me, um, uh, you know, Ronnie, do you consider that your greatest skill is managing large organizations? I'd have to say no. And I tried to bring into APAX people who had management skills. It's not that I'm a terrible manager. I'm an okay manager. But I'm not interested in running the day-to-day -day operations of a very large business. The same would apply if we were investing in a company. If a company ran into trouble... Did we have the desire to go in and run it on a day-to-day -day basis? We would only do that in extremis. We would try to recruit managers who had done it before. And I first recruited people who came from big companies in 1984, three years after I started, because I realized that you couldn't really make money out of things that you didn't understand, and that the uh, meaning by that the technical expertise from coming from a specific sector and secondly, you couldn't really help businesses to grow unless you could bring them an understanding of the sector, an understanding of the problems they were going to face in management. And so we built a team of very experienced professionals. One came from GEC Marconi and ran a you know, multi-hundred million pound company. Uh, another came from uh, British Telecom. Another one came from GD Soul. And mixing those skills with entrepreneurial skills and financial skills meant that we could grow a lot faster than our, than our competitors. Now, if you look at what happened to some of my competitors, they kept defining the business according to their own needs. Excuse me. They wanted to be at the center of it, 
They wanted to do the things that they knew how to do. What's the result? Some of them disappeared completely. They couldn't maintain the growth rate to attract the greatest talent. Great talent, people like you in this room, wants to go to the best firms. And if you get a firm that is tiny and not growing, you're not going to attract the best talent. And so the answer to your question is that the business tells you, but a lot of people don't want to listen. And the result is that their firms don't become successful or as successful as they might have been. Thank you very much. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're out of time for, for more questions. Um, for those of you who would like to learn more from what has been a, a fascinating talk with a great deal in it, there is the book on sale outside, um, and Sir Ronald is going to stay for a few minutes here to sign copies for those who would wish. Uh, we also have a reception available in the senior uh, common room on the fifth floor of this building, to which all who've come to the lecture are invited. And Sir Ronald is going to be there uh, for a few minutes after the lecture. So may I, on your behalf and on behalf of LSE and the Department of Management, say thank you very much for fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.